0: If you don't subscribe to our Women's Performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hello, Feisty Friends. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get started today, I want to take a moment and thank you for being here. I also want to make sure you know that this podcast is part of a bigger Feisty Medio ecosystem, and that ecosystem includes six podcasts, two cycling podcasts, two triathlon podcasts, and our most popular podcast, Hit Play Not Pause, which is all about how we stay active and doing the things we love through the menopause transition and as we age. Additionally, we have a women's sports and performance newsletter called The Feist, written by the one and only Kelly O'Mara. If you are not subscribed to that, definitely click down on the link in the show notes. It is filled with women's sports and performance news. We cover every sport, but like many outlets, we don't ignore full coverage of the sports that we love, like running, cycling, triathlon, CrossFit, and more. So if you want to wow your friends the next time you're out on a run with your in-depth knowledge about all things women in sport, subscribe using the link below. So on to my guest for today, Tracy Carson is an epidemiologist, which means she does research and works in the intersection between medical science and public health. Specifically, Tracy is a women's health specialist with a PhD in public health and a master's in health behavior and health education. Her work has focused broadly on reproductive and menstrual cycle health, and she specializes in working with active women, yay, with a history of disordered eating. Tracy's training includes studying under leading physician researchers at Harvard University and Boston Children's Hospital. And she has published first-authored research, including papers in the top sports medicine journals in the world. Tracy and I discuss how her her experience in sport and with an eating disorder has shaped her interest in women's health and performance. We talk about how we can decouple the common cultural fallacy that thin equals fit, and how we help young women focus on long-term health. As always, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Tracy, good morning. Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. How are you?
1: Hi, Sarah. I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to chat. I'm a huge fan of the podcast, and I think you guys give so much great info out. So hopefully I can contribute
0: to that. I, I, you definitely can. I was researching you this morning, um, but we got delayed a bit in our recording, um, and I thank you for your patience. But you're you're um, recovering from an injury?
1: Yeah, it's broken collarbone, which, you know, I'm told is the rite of passage for cyclists. So unfortunately, right. um getting that in early. But um yeah, I know we've had some, hopefully just had more time to prepare. Exactly. So <laughs> get this scheduled. So I'm I'm excited.
0: We're ready for it now. Do you do you actually consider yourself an athlete? Like you I know that you ride, obviously, but
1: yeah, yeah I do. And I, you know, kind of throughout my life it's been that trend that I always am trying to find you know, a sport to be really committed to. It's just my personality. I feel like I, I'm a better person when I'm training for something or have competition to look forward to because it gives me that competitive outlet. And um, honestly, like mental emotional outlet, too. I just love sports. Um, right now, I'm doing road cycling and crit racing. So that's been my newest endeavor the last two years. Um, I moved down to Asheville, North Carolina, and cycling's huge here. So it gave me the opportunity to get a little too involved, maybe <laughs> quickly as I transitioned down here. Cool. And did
0: you play sports as a kid growing up?
1: Oh yeah, I did. Soccer was my first, mm-hmm. my first love. Um, growing up in the Midwest, it was kind of every, every little kid was in AYSO soccer. And then I played until I was about 17. Um, also ran in, in high school. I was a kicker on the football team in high school, which is really fun. Nice. Um, and then in college, I went to the University of Michigan and was on the women's rowing team for three of those years. Mm-hmm. Um, and left because of my own experience with. Reds and disordered eating, right? And kind of later in life, have picked up cycling and always worked out in between, you know, college and now. But yeah, um, I just I love sports. I love lifting weights. I love just using my body and having that as my my outlet for many things.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Likewise, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Um, and then you found your way into like reproductive health research. Um, was part of that. Was part of that personal experience that you just mentioned on the rowing team, like, did you was, was that personal experience part of why you decided to do research in women's health?
1: Yeah, it was really the only reason. I never, I never saw myself going to grad school or getting a PhD. Mm-hmm. I wanted to work in sports. I um was in the school of kinesiology at Michigan, thought I would work in an athletic department or something like that. But then in college, I was really. Struggling with amenorrhea for many, many years and was just not able to get good information. (laughs) I was so confused about my body, the reproductive system, why this was happening to me, why doctors just told me it was normal because I was an athlete, why I was just told to go on birth control to fix my period, which we know is not a fix, it's a band aid. And I was kind of just fueled by that frustration and. Confusion around my body, why amenorrhea was, you know, such a consistent part of my twenties, and I got really interested in research around it. Then coming to find just the lack of research in for women in general, but then female athletes in general as it related to overtraining, undereating, and how it affected um, the menstrual cycle, bone health, right? Kind of that original female athlete triad model, and I just became my personality is a little obsessive. So I just became a little obsessed with trying to figure out how we could help women understand their bodies, but then also how we could kind of push the agenda forward on preventing amenorrhea, not just treating it with birth control, treating it being in quotations there, with birth control, having more answers for women than it's normal or here, take the pill
0: yeah and you know I think when you when we're talking about eating disorders and i'm one I'm just kind of wondering what your experience is here. Like I feel like as an elite athlete, I'm often confused by like, did I have an eating disorder or no like because I feel like I was told to eat less. Like I feel like I was doing a performance related like something that someone told a coach that's supposedly in the know is telling me to do something. and I'm like, well, I do want to increase my I do want to improve my performance of course like I'm an elite athlete so this is what I'm going to do like do you did you have that a sort of similar intersection between like personal decisions and things that you were being told oh my
1: gosh yeah and i think that's i think that's a really confusing place especially for younger athletes who think well i'm being really healthy i'm being really diligent about my nutrition I'm doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing um, when it comes to fueling for training and recovering. But yeah, I mean, I was given so much praise for how disciplined I was with food. You know, I was 100% paleo diet while I was doing an endurance sport, like just things really not okay. But I, I was given a lot of praise for, you know, losing weight, being really lean, being really disciplined. But I think, you know, of course it took time and a lot of time and therapy and all these things, but just realizing that the difference between being healthy and aware of your nutrition and having disordered eating or an eating disorder is really that psychological distress piece. If your whole, maybe not your whole, but a significant part of your day is thinking about food, ruminating about food um counting calories in your head throughout the day in a way that is distracting and taking you out of your life that's when you know i think and i'm not a psychologist or a therapist but that's really a huge marker of that disordered piece um and i think that it's a fine line for a lot of people who want to be healthy and fit and strong um but when it starts to really take over your life and starts to control you is when um there's a disorder.
0: Well, and I think it's such a slippery slope, right? Because if you're hungry, (laughs) right, then of course you're thinking about food all the time. That's kind of a natural. So I feel like it's a very easy, like you're trying to cut calories you've been told to, you're hungry, you start perseverating on food and it's just a downward spiral, you know? Um, What was it for you that eventually kind of holds you out of that, like you said, that, you know, you had some therapy, but like, was there a moment where you were like, I need help? I need to change something. What was that? What did that look like for you?
1: Yeah, there's actually a very specific moment that um, I've I've talked about it before, but I got blood work done one year at my annual physical, my well woman visit, which everyone should do each year, (laughs) Um, go get your blood work done. And I had, you know, the next day the nurse called me and said, your hormone levels are menopausal. Like your estrogen is so low. Um, and it's concerning. And I'm I'm, you know, I'm trained as an epidemiologist. That's what I did my PhD in. And so data and numbers really hit me more than like, hey, I think you should be eating more, or like, my opinion is that like maybe you should be exercising a little less. No, data, like having a hard data point to look at, um, really hit me very hard. And I had started to come to terms with my restrictive eating a bit. And so that was kind of the last, you know, thing that set off the domino effect for me of like, this is not healthy. And here's a clear data point showing that um, my body is not where it should be for a 22 year old woman. Um, And that's, that's what set off kind of everything towards my recovery.
0: Mm -hmm. For decades, running shoes have been researched, I've personally been running in the Alma Cruz, and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. Building muscle can be tough, and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. Aminoco has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with Aminoco Perform and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. As we head into summer, rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance, reducing stress, and living a long and healthy life. We should all invest in better sleep. So think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow shout out to team otter which i love because it has a gentle cooling effect and i was able to choose how much stuffing i wanted in it which is super important to me because i'm doing a decent amount of crossfit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky so having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night And as of fall, 2023 Lagoon launched their 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase. If you want to feel great and look great every morning, waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match and then use the code performance for 15% off your first purchase. That's code performance at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off. And the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. Interesting. And you, you're, you're a specialist in public health and health behavior, health education. I think I saw that was your master's. Like, what does it mean to study public health and health behavior? Oh my gosh. Well, I think kind of what
1: you come out of the behavioral health world learning is that it's very hard to change human behavior. Right. Um, <laughs> as humans, we really don't like to change our behavior when it's set in a pattern. Um, but it's interesting because when I was in that um, behavioral health program, I really wanted to focus more on mental health. And that's when I had started kind of my interest in doing more research in disordered eating. It's kind of the time when I knew I wanted to pursue work in female athlete health and disordered eating and REDS. And right before I started my PhD and, you know, I learned quickly that things like eating disorders and disordered eating don't fit well into behavioral health models because mm-hmm. it's a psychological. a um, disease, right? It's right. not a behavioral issue. And that kind of pushed me even more into being like fascinated by disordered eating and eating disorders, because it didn't fit this model that we had in public health. And so then I wanted to try to figure out how do we address this issue in a public health context, not just in like a medical psychological context. And that was kind of push me yeah push me to be even more interested if you will
0: <laughs> yeah that's super interesting and so how do we address eating disorders in a public health context rather than a psychological or to add to the psychological context
1: yeah so from a public health standpoint right we think about um primary prevention secondary prevention and tertiary prevention mm-hmm. so primary prevention is like let's stop this before it happens so how do we think about working with young women, athletes, you know, given the context of our conversation, especially to try to stop that before it really becomes a problem. Right. And then tertiary prevention is kind of like, okay, we see these behaviors, these, you know, ruminations around food, this calorie counting obsession with food. How do we intervene as quickly as possible?
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that's where public health comes in. Then tertiary is treatment. So that's really where we're seeing psychology, medical intervention come in. Like the disease has progressed. We now need medical treatment, so public health can come in on that that front end. And so, I'm really interested in learning and researching how we can address prevention, because really, if we want to help women be as successful as they can be, both with their health, their performance, we think about life course health down the line. We need to prevent this from happening, because once we've already caused a little bit of damage, right? The damage is there. So, we want to think about how do we address these sport environments. Coaches, interactions with athletes, providing resources, making sure athletes have the resources and understand how to get help when they need it. Um, And that's the role of public health.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think there's you could ask the same questions of the culture more broadly or any, you know, sports program um, or even any for any active child. Like, how do we stop that happening the, like those kinds of behaviors developing in young kids at just in general you know
1: exactly yeah and that was the first part of my dissertation work was just interviewing runners division 1 runners and trying to understand like what were some of those factors that led you to having reds to having right. disorder early on just to inform how can we intervene <laughs> what are those factors that we can be aware of um and there's so many right and it's really complicated um But things that stood out that relate to sport and how we can intervene there is definitely, you know, coaches and how they speak to their athletes about body size, diet, all those things. Um, But also just like these norms we have in sport around like lighter is faster. And, um, you know, the way you look is the way that will, you know, that'll translate to your performance, which we just know is not Mm -hmm. true. Um, but those myths that kind of trickle down through the generations and are still believed to be true. And I think we are really starting to, to intervene on those at least. Um, I think we're, you know, seeing this generation of college athletes really speak a little bit more about, you know, fueling themselves. We're seeing better dietitians involved in sport programs on campuses that are a little bit more health at every size informed, a little bit more focused on Things like a performance plate and not like counting calories, things like that, that I think are really setting us up for hopefully a healthier, stronger generation.
0: Yes. We can hope. We can hope. <laughs> um, and we, you know, we've had a couple episodes before on LEA and Red Ass, but just like give us a quick reminder, like what those two things are, what the differences are, and then like some of the long-term health consequences too. I'd love to talk about.
1: Yeah. So LEA is low energy availability, right? It's basically um, thinking about exercise energy expenditure and in mismatch essentially with energy intake or calorie intake through food. And then red's relative energy deficiency in sport um, is underlied by low energy availability. And relative energy deficiency in sport is, you know, has this framework of 10 performance outcomes that are associated with having REDS, as well as 10 health consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I focus on specifically in my research is more around the reproductive and mental health consequences, bone health consequences. And then there is that psychological health piece too. That's really important. But that framework includes other things like cardiovascular, immune health, um, it's pretty comprehensive and continues to be updated. And we still have to do a lot of research on a lot of those components. Um, but that framework is there for people like me and research to to really try to start to address um, all of those all of those proposed outcomes.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the other day, um, I was chatting with a friend, and she said to me that she thinks that the like in terms of convincing young people that they should potentially eat more or not like make sure they're eating enough essentially that she felt like young people were not convinced by the long-term consequences of undereating, right. That they would rather be skinny, you know? And I remember like thinking things like that, like, In my twenties, that I was not at all concerned. But I know some twenty-year-olds are, and kudos to them. But I was not at all concerned about what was going to happen down the road. I wasn't there yet. So, like, how do we help that generation understand that um, they need to eat enough, like, for their long-term health? But how do you talk to those folks?
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, really, the biggest hurdle in public health in general is trying to convince people that there's a long-term payoff to short-term health behavioral changes or you know different interventions because you can't see that payoff right it seems so far out um but i think it really comes down to education of course like i didn't know when i was 20 that there were bone health consequences to undereating and that having amenorrhea was highly associated with having poor bone density right and that is something that follows you throughout your entire life. Your bones don't do a great job at repairing themselves once damage has been done. And so things like that, I think there's a huge education piece, but also we need more women to model the behaviors, right, of fueling and talking about fueling, but also showing it, not just talking about it. Mm -hmm. I also think having athletes of various, you know, body weight, body size, showing that highlighting athletes of all different body sizes because we do have elite athletes at the top of every sport that don't look like the model athlete necessarily, but they are high performing elite athletes. And I think just pairing the education with more body size diversity and modeling these behaviors is a good first step. Um it, it's not simple, though. It's very hard to, to convince young women that there is a long-term payoff, but it's it's also we have to start somewhere. We have mm-hmm. to start somewhere. And I think it's more complicated for those young women with you know clinical eating disorders and disordered eating because there's a psychological piece that is a little bit different than an athlete who has a little bit of concern about their body shape and size. And so for those young women who do have that psychological component, it does mean, you know, that treatment is something that is really going to help them um, get past those fears and get past those initial exposures to eating more and fueling their body. And I think just too there's there's absolutely no shame in asking for that support. I think that's so important to point out because that psychological piece is so real and it's can really be overwhelming for a lot of young women and some of them can't do that on their own and that's totally okay there are people there to support you and help you work through those fears around weight gain around fueling around your body changing um but i always come back to that reminder that if your body looks the way you want it to in a highly restricted state and only in a highly restricted state that's not your healthy body size. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so breaking through that also can be really challenging, but think about how much performance potential is on the other side of a fuel body
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's scary and it's not, it's not straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a lot of empathy for everybody who has that challenge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do as well. I, I'm just thinking about like the education piece or even the cultural piece. Like, are there things, there are some things that I feel are changing a little bit, you know, like actually when like on Instagram yesterday, I saw a clip of a gymnast, an NCAA gymnast. And I, it, and I've noted this about gymnastics before that like the body types that are winning seem to be changing. Like we seem to actually have a different culture there where there's like a stronger body type, you know, rather than just this kind of like sk- super skinny kind of. Um, and I'm wondering, like, have you seen things change like that? Like in like culturally that make that education piece easier?
1: I, I mean, I certainly see things um starting to change. I think especially, you know, I was in high school 20. 2009 ish time. Right. And that was right. We had social media, but not really, it was very early stages. We had, you know, women's health magazine. We had, you know, those types of, um, you know, media sources to look to that were not very inclusive or were are not very, um, you know, we're not promoting healthy eating by any, by any means, especially for a female athlete. And I think that's an interesting topic too, is like, nutrition and diet information that we see kind of at the population level is not for female athletes, right? It's for sedentary middle-aged populations and that can be very confusing as a young person mm-hmm. seeing nutrition information across these media outlets. It is not for you. And I think right. that, that is very um confusing and conflicting as a young person trying to navigate diet culture with, you know, quote unquote population level nutrition information and then trying to also figure out what works for their own body mm-hmm. and I think that is also something that has started just recently to change on you know social media platforms like Instagram um in media we're starting to talk a little bit more about fueling like I never heard the word fueling as a young person right. mm-hmm. as a young athlete we're starting to change I think that conversation around, nutrition and trying to remove diet culture from it, which is so very challenging because it still exists, you know, everywhere you look, Mm -hmm. but starting to finally see some more examples, you know, in media, on social media, um, kind of in our popular culture that is more, you know, promoting, fueling the body instead of restricting. Um, but we have a very long way to go
0: yeah and I think you know, when you're talking about um calorie, uh what do you what would you call it? like the p- popular magazines recommending energy intake for a more sedentary population if you're an elite athlete, you obviously need a lot more. but I feel like there's also that those middle ground people who are like the amateur athletes or the you know who also need to eat more. And I think it's very confusing um when they, like you don't know actually, how much to eat and what fueling really means. And then I could go on a whole rant about Apple watches and and telling you calories and like the the accuracy slash inaccuracy there. But like, how do you like that? How does someone know if they're eating enough?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's very complicated, right? And it becomes more complicated if you have a history of restrictive eating or body dysmorphia because that kind of clouds your judgment. I wish I could say, just tune into your body, body, (laughs) just try to figure out what works best for your body and just, you know, be an intuitive eater. This might be my really hot take on the podcast, but I think intuitive eating does not work for athletes all the time. It doesn't always work. And I wish it did, but right there are things like you know, hunger and satiety cues are not that straightforward, especially maybe for endurance athletes where your cortisol is high, it messes up with your appetite. You're not hungry after training, but you need to fuel your body. Um, and so I think it's really complicated. I mean, I wish I could say everybody should go see a dietitian who specializes in sport dietetics and has training with disordered eating and can help you navigate those spaces. Um, and if you have the resources to do so, it's really a very helpful thing to do. Um, but I think everybody can try the best they can to tune into their own body and look for some of those cues of undereating, which can be subtle. But things like you know changes in mood, um, you know things that are not as obvious as like a you know my stomach is growling, but like low libido consistently poor mood consistently, fatigue in the afternoons, muscle weakness, things like that, that are becoming consistent in your day, week, month Mm -hmm. um, are often early signs, right? Um, GI upset is often, you know, correlated with restrictive eating and people tend to deal with GI upset by restricting more foods, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Because they want to figure out what is causing their symptoms. But oftentimes it can just be that you're under fueling or eating too much um, of one certain food group because that's part of what you know, your disorder is telling you to do is really focus on certain foods, but eliminate lots of other foods can mm-hmm. really cause GI issues. Um, so there are those kind of key markers, but I I wish it was as simple. I think our, you know talking about culture and media again, um, has made it harder to be attuned to your body and hunger cues as well because we're constantly being told, Especially on Instagram lately, it can be kind of funny, you know. Like oatmeal is the new like horrible thing to eat, right? Or like, or like just these like things that are just kind of staple foods in our yeah. <laughs> super athletes who doesn't eat oatmeal, Um, things like that. We're just constantly being told like, don't eat this, mm-hmm. definitely eat this. And the next week, it's like, don't eat that. It's like you just told me to eat that. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. very confusing. So that also adds, I think, another layer of challenge for athletes when they're just trying to figure out how to fuel and what to eat. Um, we have to block out some of that noise.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got an email the other day. I don't even know how, like, you know, I have a, an email account where that collects all of like where I put all of what might be junk coming to me. Like if I buy something online or something and I had this email that was like, bananas might be toxic or something, never eat it. And the sub was like, never eat a banana again or something like this. I was like, I didn't open it. Although I was very curious. I like, this is ridiculous. Like,
1: why are we demonizing foods like this? You know? I know. I know. It's truly shocking, especially when it's like a fruit or like a vegetable. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, exactly. What are we supposed to eat these days? You know? So I think that was, it adds to the, um, mental gymnastics of trying to figure out how to, um, fuel.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have a course, an online course called fueled. Um, and it basically it takes like a multi-layered approach so we have like a psychologist that who starts with the first couple of modules and then we have a nutritionist and an exercise um physiologist as well to talk about LEA and and reds and try to unpack it for people but like we went back and forth a lot around how we were going to talk about um Intuitive eating. It's interesting that you mentioned that. And then like how we, because I think, yeah, you, you said exactly the right, like kind of what we've been thinking doing this work too, is like one, like your appetite might be suppressed after training. Right. So it's like, if you exercise getting in those calories right away, like in that, you know, in whatever your fueling window is for whatever you're doing, like 15 minutes to an hour, like getting the food in, I find then my appetite kind of will come back around. But also realizing that there is like, because we've been kind of indoctrinated with eat less, eat less all the time that we may have like long-term shut down our ability to listen to our hunger cues, right? Um, So it's almost like, kind of get those, trying to get those things to work again, because I find they do, they will work for you eventually. Like if I take in some fuel after a training session or after I, I don't, I don't really train anymore. So that's an exaggeration, but after I exercise, like I, my normal hunger cues will come back later. Right. So I think there is kind of like hope that like we can get back to um being able to fuel our bodies properly without overthinking it. Um do you think that that is true or what are some of the things that you do in your life or that you've seen people do successfully?
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely a tricky um a tricky area, you know, I keep saying especially for those who have had, you know, a history of disordered eating because there is a certain like structure, I think that can help for a lot of people mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, it doesn't need to be necessarily counting macros or anything like that, but just having a plan. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, more so for endurance sports, cause that's what I've currently been doing is a lot of cycling and for runners and for, you know, cross country skiers and all those things that are, you know, high energy demand, um, to our training weeks, typically it, it there's a, it's a slippery slope between, oh, I'm not hungry. And then the next day, not really being able to complete a training session because you, oh, I'm not hungry, turns into I'm underfueled significantly, right? And it really can impact your training. So I think having some structure and just discipline around like, I'm not really hungry, but I'm going to have this shake or I'm going to have this banana. <laughs> God forbid we have a banana. Or, I'm going to have this bar you know, 15, 30 minutes after training because I'm doing this for myself. Like I'm this is like it's almost like self-care. I'm taking Mm -hmm. care of myself Mm -hmm. by having the discipline to fuel after this, you know, workout so that tomorrow I can complete my workout as well. And I think that is challenging sometimes, but you know, again, it is a slippery slope between discipline and disorder. So I want to acknowledge that as well. Um, but then, you know, you hear sometimes I was watching this video the other day and these really, you know, very successful elite female gravel racers, mm-hmm. you know, one of them was talking about how, you know, she doesn't count calories, she doesn't count macro, she doesn't track her food, you know, any of this, but, you know, she's training 25, 30 hours a week on the bike. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, whatever she's doing is working for her clearly, mm-hmm. you know, it really, mm-hmm. it really must be working. So, you know, I think people come to find what works for their bodies um, without tracking and having that discipline or structure necessarily. Mm -hmm. But I do think having some structure can really help, especially if you're prone to under eating.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because like you said, if you start under eating and skipping those snacks right after training, that does not help your appetite come back. That drives up your cortisol more, your body is stressed, your hunger cues are not there. You don't want to eat because maybe you're, you know, more comfortable restricting, or you just don't have the appetite. And that allows you to think restricting is okay because you're not hungry. And so making sure that those regular meals and snacks are there so that you do have those hunger cues coming back.
0: Yeah. Which is a weird
1: thing for some people to wrap their head around. Like, why would I eat if I'm not hungry? Mm -hmm. How would when I'm not hungry? help me be hungrier later and have those cues later it does it It does does. yeah it totally
0: does um and i was thinking about the education piece just as Mm -hmm. you were talking like i think even knowing like knowing that the fuel that you take in right after exercise is going to go to your muscle glycogen the carbs that you eat like is actually going to help you recover and get to the next session better you know like we kind of talked about and also like bringing your cortisol down and feeling better for the rest of the day, even like not hitting a mid afternoon slump, like yeah. things like that. When you, when you know it, then you're like, Oh, okay. I, you know, cause a lot of folks who are restricting are actually trying to do something good for themselves. Right. So if you learn more about how to do that, right. Then people mm-hmm. I think are often willing to, um, to eat a little bit more at the right time and and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. And I think something I like to always talk about as well is like those within day energy deficits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of that for especially endurance athletes and all athletes is that, you know, intra workout nutrition piece that a lot of people don't love to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they have a more restrictive mindset, because there's that, like, oh, I want to save those calories for later, or I want to save those calories to have like a big breakfast or whatever it is. But understanding that, say you have breakfast and you have a two or three hour training ride, right? If you don't take in any calories for those two or three hours, first of all, you're not going to feel very good. But second of all, you're creating this huge energy or calorie deficit for a pretty good chunk of the day, right? And then say you have a snack afterwards, your deficit from the energy that you burned on that two to three hour ride is pretty significant in within the course of your day. And what we have found too is that those big energy deficits during the day, even if your total calorie intake over the course of the day is adequate, those within day big deficits are correlated with having irregular menstrual cycles. Oh, and interesting. Huge, huge dips in mood as well. But if we right. think of kind of the physiology of it, your body was not like being in a huge deficit state for a pretty good chunk of the day. Mm -hmm. because it disrupts your hormones. Right. And so if that's happening almost every day where you're not fueling and you're creating that deficit, it creates very unhappy hormones,
0: right? Even for someone who cumulatively might be eating a decent amount of calories over the whole day. It's making me think of like the intermittent fasting kind of trend that's happening and how that intersects with like, um, folks who exercise in sometimes devastating ways. Right. Like, so actually the timing, what I heard you say is like the timing of the intake after, um, after exercise is, or during, before, during, during, Mm -hmm. after is like as important as the actual amount of calories that you're taking in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And intermittent fasting is like, I just, I can't even think about <laughs> right? like, women doing intermittent fasting and training fasted in the morning. Um, and just, you know, like from the research we've seen intermittent fasting should really only be for people later in life. If women are going to do it, it needs to be postmenopausal women because we understand how much it affects our hormones and our menstrual cycle. So you know, just want to throw that out there. Wow.
0: So even in a more sedentary population for women, intermittent fasting is not recommended?
1: It's not recommended. I mean, our hormones, female hormones are so sensitive Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and we want to keep them happy because our hormones are essential for so many things, right? Way beyond reproduction, Um, you know, um, cognitive clarity, mood so many things rely on our hormone health and Mm. I, you know, there's a bit of an opinion mixed in here. Right. But I don't think intermittent fasting is for women.
0: Mm. Yeah. I I
1: don't like that answer, but it's not made for women of reproductive age and their hormones.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense when, yeah, it makes it, we've heard that a lot before. Right. Um, So, yeah, I just, I don't know what it's like to be a sedentary woman. So, so I can't, like, I don't have that personal experience, but I do know that in really, as soon as I'm exercising, there is no way I could be in a calorie deficit for like several hours per day and then exercise, try to exercise fasted. Um, Yeah. Sounds horrible. Yes, exactly. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tifosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. Tifosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They are shatterproof, poly-bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy, the more you sweat. So they are secure and don't slide down your face. Even when you're running in hot conditions, no matter what sport you do, Tofosi has shades for you, whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to TafosiOptics.com and use the code FM20, FM as in feisty media, to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at TafosiOptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. And use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right. You get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY. F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. The one thing I did want to ask you is like is there anything interesting in your research that has come up that like we don't see elsewhere, you know, or something that just like really struck you like I wish everybody could know this.
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I think everything menstrual cycle related is interesting and fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um I think we have a huge deficit in our education around the menstrual cycle for women. I think, you know, I could go on some soap boxes here, but oh, we like soap boxes. So
0: <laughs> feel free.
1: Something that I'm really passionate about in terms of educating women around their menstrual cycle is that the main event of our menstrual cycle is not necessarily the menstrual bleed. It's ovulation.
0: Mm.
1: So women are waiting for the marker of their period bleed, right? And then that is seen as like, okay, great. I got my period this month. I'm on track, et cetera. But what we really want to start promoting for women is to be tracking their ovulation because ovulation is when we actually release the hormones into our body that are health promoting hormones. So, progesterone and estrogen, right? And we as women want those because, like I mentioned earlier, they affect so many parts of our health. Mm -hmm. And we don't know that we don't, we don't grow up learning that. Mm -hmm. And so understanding, especially for female athletes, that you can have a menstrual bleed, it does not mean that you're ovulating. So interesting. Yeah. Seeing if you are ovulating and when you're ovulating Mm -hmm. is really important to really understand menstrual cycle health and menstrual cycle health, I think is a huge key to performance. No, so, and that gets really complicated if we introduce like birth control and different types of birth control. I'm speaking a bit more to a cycle that occurs without birth control, just for simplicity. Mm-hmm. Um, right. A lot of contraceptive options, you do not ovulate. That's the mechanism that prevents mm-hmm. um, pregnancy. <laughs> but there are some IUDs now where you can still ovulate. Mm-hmm. So the low dose hormonal IUDs you can ovulate with those. Not everybody will, unfortunately. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But if you're thinking about contraceptive options, which is one of my favorite topics, Mm -hmm. and you want to prevent pregnancy or you have other symptoms that you are trying to address by using contraceptives, thinking about options that may allow you to still ovulate Mm -hmm. is something really interesting to talk about with your provider.
0: Right. That's very interesting. Sorry, continue.
1: No, just because we want that that peak to be happening around ovulation in um, with our hormones. Our menstrual bleed is just the bleed. You know, we're shedding our lining. The hormones are coming around
0: ovulation. Hmm. Okay. So what are some of those options for birth control that you would recommend that, uh, that do allow us to ovulate?
1: Oh, happy you asked. <laughs> um, so um the low dose, low dose excuse me, hormonal IUDs like marina, um, Kylina, things like that. Like I said, I cannot promise that everyone will ovulate mm-hmm. when they have these, but there is evidence that shows after about six months, we're seeing that a lot of women will start to ovulate again. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's other mechanisms that prevent pregnancy. It's not that, oh no, after six months, it's not as effective. That's not what I'm saying mm-hmm. because the IUD has other mechanisms that prevent, you know, pregnancy from occurring while still allowing for ovulation to occur, Mm -hmm. which is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of women, myself included until pretty recently, didn't know that that was even an option to ask for that.
0: Mm -hmm. I didn't even know, yeah, that it was important to ask for that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, because we get little to no education about our reproductive system (laughs) as women. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, those are the uh, currently available options that are, you know, conversations you can have with your provider around mm-hmm. options that allow you to ovulate, right? Like the birth control pill. Um will, you know, it works by preventing ovulation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some of those other like Depot, which is um um and Nexplanon, which are two other options, work by preventing ovulation. Mm-hmm. So right, there are different mechanisms now that we can look to within our options for contraception mm-hmm. that um yeah, can allow us to have the opportunity to ovulate. I'll say it like that, mm-hmm. um, which is really, really cool. And then, of course, there's, you know, natural planning um, devices where you can track your basal body temperature that are like, you know, not as effective at preventing pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But you certainly will have more in-depth information around when you're ovulating if you're doing things like basal body temperature, cervical mucus tracking, things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And just for clarity, um, if we have, if we use a birth control that allows us to ovulate still, Mm -hmm. what are the health benefits of that for us?
1: Well, from what we're seeing right now is that having those release of hormones around ovulation, Mm -hmm. cognitive health, mood, right? Because we know birth control is highly correlated with depression and having mental health Mm -hmm. side effects. So that's going to be something that we see improved. you know, and then having those hormones for things like bone health for mm-hmm. our muscle tissues, we want our naturally occurring hormone release to be happening as it was, you know, biologically designed, even though that's a strange way to think of it. Um, I certainly am a proponent of all birth control options, though. i I do I'm not one of those people who thinks birth control is bad. I think it serves an amazing purpose for women globally and has been one of the biggest advancements in health for women and their autonomy and independence. So I am like all for supporting women in their decision making around that. Um but if it's something that is of interest to you and is a conversation that you would want to have with your provider knowing some newer, you know, developments and options, I think is really empowering as well.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Wow. That's great information. I know we get a lot of questions about birth control yeah. and a lot of the the answers are often like, well, we don't really know, <laughs> you know, and it's really frustrating. So I I had never heard that before about ovulation and the importance of it and what the hormones actually can do for you too, like in real terms, right? So that's um, super helpful. Okay. Anything else that um, folks should know before we go? I think I'll just
1: add my last plug for, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about fueling your body, restrictive eating, Reds, low EA, understanding that it's a very complex issue for each woman and it's individual to each woman, right? Um, And the psychological piece of it, the body image piece of it, the environment piece of it. But really, you know, from the public health perspective, thinking about long term health and how restrictive eating low ea is not just a an acute issue or a, an acute health concern but is also a long term health concern especially as it relates to to bone health later in life and you know my nerdy public health insight here right is that like bone fractures and breaks later in life are a huge predictor of early mortality mm-hmm. so That might not be something that really um, is of interest to a 17 year old who is, you know, going through um, restrictive eating and thinking about long term health. But I think just understanding the trajectory of our health is something that I'm really passionate about. And the more we can educate young people and help them understand and also help clinicians understand, like, how do we um, counsel these patients and give them the information about their health right now, but also their health in the future. Um, and huge area of research opportunity there, too. Um, mm-hmm. We still don't know a lot about, you know, Reds and fertility, Reds and um, menopause, Reds and later life health. There's so much there. So, yeah. of course, as a researcher, I'm always going to end with like future, you know, opportunities for research that we still need people to dive into, um, which is really endless in the female athlete space right now.
0: Yeah, for sure. But yeah, yeah. I, um, I was really struck by like in the, with the bone density piece like a stat that I saw and I'm not even gonna remember it so this is going to be very anticlimactic but but like around if a, if an older woman falls and breaks her hip like her chances of passing away in the next 10 years just go up like exponentially and that statistic like I didn't really realize that because I think sometimes as young people we think young I'm counting myself a young person but like that we that we think of a bone break as something that just heals you know, like, oh, well, it will heal. Right. And like, of course it does as we get older too, but like, it's, there are complications around that, that like can affect your lifespan. Right. And that really like affected me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think a lot of people hear that statistic and are like, it's jarring, Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, if we think early ways to think about prevention is bone health and how do we, have strong bones is by eating. (laughs) Really, that's a huge way. Lifting weights, of course, too, things like that. But um, yeah, nutrition is a huge
0: part of of our bone health. Right. And then there's the other piece of like, not just the bone density, but like your actual proprioception and your ability to like maintain, you know, knowing where your body is in space (laughs) that helps stop things like falling down and breaking bones. Right. So all of that is just like continuing continued activity um, as we get older too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, Tracy, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It's been really fun to talk to you. Is there somewhere we can follow you or find you or um, find more information? Yeah, sure. Um, Instagram is
1: kind of my go-to. I don't really use other social media platforms, but I'm just at Tracy Carson, on Instagram. Um, yeah. And you see me on the streets out in Asheville on my bike, <laughs> um, but Instagram's the easiest way to find me.
0: Amazing. Well, I hope you heal quickly, um, you. from, from your, <laughs> from your crash. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Sarah.